Welcome again to the Sport and History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. We're about to relaunch our seminar for the 2019-20 academic year, but the plan is to continue running interviews with researchers in the history of sport alongside podcasting our regular seminars. I'm Raf Nicholson from Bournemouth University and I'm Jeff Levitt's co-convener at the BSSH seminar at the IHR and I'll be acting as the presenter today. I'm going to be turning things on their head and interviewing Jeff. So the interviewer becomes the interviewee. <laughs> Are you nervous, Jeff? I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm as terrified as you were in this situation. <laughs> um, so Jeff completed his PhD at Birkbeck University of London in 2014. Since then, he's worked at a number of institutions, including De Montfort University and Northampton University. His research focuses on the relationship between sport and the British and French empires. And he's currently working on the life of the sports journalist France Rochelle. I meant to ask you how you say that, Jeff. Well, I say it, Reichel, but I'm not sure that that's correct. Okay. But I'm sure, you know, nobody so, else really talks about him. So. <laughs> okay, so Reichel and the memorial erected to him at his death in 1934 in Paris. So we'll be talking about him a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff's also the secretary of the British Society of Sports History and, of course, the brains behind this podcast. Oh, one of them. <laughs> I think it was mainly your idea. Okay. I'll give you the credit, Jeff. Right. <laughs> um, so, Jeff, the title of your PhD thesis um, was "Playing the Man: Sports and Imperialism, 1900 to 1907." Can you start by telling me why you decided to make sports history the subject of your PhD? Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't really say that sports history is the subject of my PhD. Uh, I didn't really come into it as a sports historian, so. When I was at Birkbeck, I did an MA in London Studies, and London Studies was a kind of a multidisciplinary thing. So I was kind of just wandering around London and looking at, um, I was thinking about, what was that? I can't even remember what I was thinking about. Um, but I was sort of looking at, I was probably at cricket at Lord's, and talking about cricket in South Africa, and talking to a friend, yes, I remember now, so I was talking to a friend about South Africa, mm -hmm. and then we both realised, talking through, South Africa wasn't actually a country when they first toured the UK in 1907. It was a collection of colonies, and I just thought, oh, that's, that's odd, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hadn't really thought about history in those terms. I knew nothing about South African history at that yeah. time. But you're a big cricket fan. Yeah, 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 I am a big cricket fan, that's true. Um, and then I was talking to my... MA dissertation supervisor Harry Cox and he said and we were talking about cricket for some reason he said well why don't you look into that that's quite interesting um, and so I did and that was became the core of my MA dissertation so it was more about the way that the colonies are represented in London that dissertation and sport was just the means of looking at that so from stadiums or stadia thinking about how colonies were represented at Stadia in the Edwardian period when they mm -hmm. first started coming to uh, this country. Um, and then looking at kind of imperial landmarks within the city. So I was really influenced by the work of um, David Gilbert and Felix Driver, who look at um, London as an imperial city. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, sport is such an imperial uh, activity at that time that it must be it must be implicated in the same process of London becoming an imperial city self-consciously in the 19th and 20th centuries. And then I read Jonathan Schneer's book about London 1900, mm -hmm. um, in which he didn't talk about sport at all as a cultural activity. So he's very interested in 
politics and literature and the way that that kind of permeated London in 1900. Yep. And I thought, well, you can't talk about imperial culture without talking about sport. And that's when I realised, once I started look, doing a, you know, a literature review, oh, wow, loads of people have done this before. Maybe I shouldn't bother. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, Harry encouraged me to persevere. And I'm, I'm grateful that he did. Um, so when I went to do my PhD at Birkbeck, rather than having a sports historian as a supervisor, I actually had uh, a South African specialist, Hilary Sapphire, mm -hmm. who was great because she, as I said, I, the, the South African element of that dissertation was fairly weak. Um, retrospectively, um, that's my opinion. At the time, I was chuffed. <laughs> <laughs> of course, aren't we all? Yeah, just to get it finished. Um, but she, yeah, she really beefed up my sort of um, South African history, but also my analysis of imperial culture. The sports history I had to deal with myself until I kind of got a wider network of people that I met at conferences and things like that. So, yeah, so that's, you know, that's a long-winded way of saying um, I was interested in sport recreationally, but I was more interested as an as a early historian in my career in empire. That's quite interesting. Do you think that gives you a bit of a different perspective to people who have kind of been mired in sports history and looking outwards from within rather than the other way around? If that uh, makes sense? Possibly, because I think that there are a lot of things that sports historians take for granted. Talking, well, you know, we, we were talking about this before we before we started recording this in terms of looking at sport in terms of gender, which I obviously there's a lot of literature to do with gender and imperialism. Mm. Um, but I must admit, I, I was less enlightened in those days, so I kind of just took it for granted that sport was a masculine activity in the 19th and 20th centuries, and I didn't realise that actually uh, the dominant culture of the empire was a way, way of excluding ethnic minorities, which I was very concerned with um, exploring that in my original dissertation thesis. But I didn't, I didn't think about it as being a way of excluding women from... Uh, from imperial mm. culture as well, or at least not excluding them, but putting them in a certain place and certainly a kind of a um, an inferior place within within imperial culture to men. Uh, and that's something I've only really thought about uh, since meeting people like you, actually, oh. <laughs> over the last sort of seven or eight years. Okay, but there's, um, I guess, the, if the title of the PhD was playing the man, there yeah. must have been an element of kind of looking at imperial masculinity yeah. and manliness. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. So that was that was really the, the big idea of my thesis was how do uh, sportsmen, how does their identity become defined within the imperial space? Who can be um, an imperial man and specifically a man mm. in my thesis? who can be an imperial man and who cannot. And so a really uh, classic example of that is somebody like Ranjit Singhji, who overcomes uh, the racial bar, which um, I used uh, Bill Schwartz's work quite a lot, um, uh, especially a book called A White Man's World, mm -hmm. where he sees the Edwardian period as really being the key period in defining who can belong and who is outside mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, the imperial masculine ideal. And of course, Ranji overcomes this barrier as an Indian, um, making a success of his career as a sportsman um, in the heart of empire. But um, he's, a, he's an aristocrat, so this helps him to get over, over that barrier. 
Um, and I use him as a case study and contrast him with James Peters, who um, we've talked about before on this podcast with Tom Weir, who briefly overcomes uh, the racial barrier within rugby, yep. um, only to be rejected because of... Well, if you want to find out more about that story, you can listen to the Tom Weir <laughs> podcast and learn more about his work or a recent BBC documentary that Tom helped to make okay. about Peters. But yeah, so, so I was really looking at how, are, how is masculinity, mm. how is manliness uh, portrayed within the empire? How is it, um, how is it uh, defined on the sports field? Yeah. Um, but yeah, as I was saying before, I think I should have really couched it in terms of sports people rather than sports men. And so I slightly regret the title now, although I thought at the time I thought, oh, that's a really clever title. You know. It is quite clever. Yeah, but it was, it was also because I was thinking about myself as a sportsman and my conception of myself as a sportsman has changed over time as I've grown up and as, um, as I've become more educated, I suppose. So I went from a very kind of working class background in a post-industrial part of the UK where to be a man you had to be a very specific kind of person or at least to be uh, respected within mm. within that working class culture and in terms of sport that meant playing hard, drinking hard, um, accepting violence as an everyday part of the game um, and I don't think people would necessarily see me as being that kind of person now. And not, so, you're not particularly violent, no. No, but uh, I, you know, I had to be to a certain extent when I was an adolescent because that was that was the way that you were accepted, and so I probably wasn't as, um, you know, I wasn't the toughest guy in our team, but. Uh, I had, you had to, there was a minimum level of toughness you needed to have to, to get on in, in that team. It's really interesting though, because in a way what you're talking about is kind of, and this title, Playing the Man, is about performativity of mm, gender, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's so the very, word I was trying to look for. It's very um, Judith Butler-esque, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was somebody uh, who really informed the way that the thesis changed. Actually through a friend of mine who is not a historian uh, called Heather Mendick. She's a... Uh, She's a lot of things. She's, but she, she's her PhD is in physics, I think, or wow. maths maybe. Um, but she's very, you know, she's very interested in uh, feminist writers, and she said to me, "Well, you've got to read Judith Butler, or somebody else I don't know about." Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I started reading Butler's work, I thought, "Well, this is just, I've come to this through one route, but this is somebody I should really be." Uh, looking up to as a as an example of how to write about um, masculinity and gender and this word manliness which we always kind of distinguish from masculinity mm. and I, I've kind of used it in that sort of performative way that you know there's lots of different conceptions of how to be a man uh, some of them less acceptable than others I would say yeah and that it's kind of all intersectional as well because yeah. that's what you're saying about Ramjit Sindhu isn't it about um, he kind of gets away um, with not being white because he's of the aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. Although he's he faced a lot of challenges, uh, and of course the other problem when you're doing this kind of history is that this is the kind of thing that people don't write about in newspapers or mm. even in memoirs. A lot of the time, is the kind of things, bad experiences of being rejected as as being uh, one of the in group 
of things that especially I think um, at that time people tended to skip over or see as not being uh, something that you could talk about in public I suppose so it's very hard for us as historians to kind of recover those stories I think. Can't do and oral histories because they're all dead. Yeah so. well I kind of prefer that really <laughs> despite the despite starting this podcast it's not always my favourite thing to do is to talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> so what sources have you kind of mainly worked with and especially thinking about um, the work that you've done on uh, French imperialism. Mm. Are, you, are you fluent in French? Are you, have you been able to work with French sources? Yeah, I definitely worked with French sources. Um, not fluent in French. I've just spent a weekend in Liège where I definitely proved I wasn't fluent <laughs> in French, uh, <laughs> uh, particularly as the day progressed. <laughs> but uh, I, can, I can read French well and I've got better at reading French mm -hmm. and so um, writing in French would be a challenge for me. Presenting in French would be a challenge but researching in French isn't a challenge. And I think actually um, it's something that sh people should try to do more because even there's a little offshoot, I started to do some little digging around in Finland. Um, I was thinking about doing a comparative thing between Ireland and Finland in terms of nationalist culture in the 1900s. And my Finnish is tiny, but I could still read newspapers because mm. journalists by their nature have to communicate in a very well generally they have to communicate in a simple way and especially yeah. in those days to not necessarily a highly educated audience mm -hmm. so um, it, the more you read newspapers of a certain period the easier it is to to kind of go through them quickly yeah so um, so yeah I mean like a lot of sports historians my main kind of archival work was newspapers mm -hmm. but there are archives around and so there was a couple of archives in Paris uh, that I use. I used the Paris archives and uh, an archive in Lille which was a, um, an archive of uh, the Association of Sports Journalists oh. in Paris and so uh, uh, in France and so that was one that I found kind of not really when I was looking for it uh, and so the archival stuff is out there you know but I also use a lot of visual culture, so I really like visual culture as evidence, and I really enjoy art generally. So for me, and this partly went back to the London Studies course that I did, was very much about just looking at the city, picking up on symbols, what do they actually mean? You know, these buildings that we walk past every day. For an architect, architects mm. can read a building's meaning because they've been trained to do that and they've mm. been trained to use uh, symbols and styles to convey meaning. And I think that's something that we can really take on as historians is, I mean, it's, I mean Roland Barthes was doing it in the 1950s, 60s and probably people were doing it before that, but the, the whole world around us is full of meaning uh, that changes on the perspective of the viewer. But you, as a historian, your job is to say is to try and organise it in such a way that the reader can kind of see what it might meant, have meant in its cultural context. Yeah. That that a meaning which might have been lost to us nowadays. And so something uh, where I did that in the MA dissertation was talking about uh, the Imperial Hotel, which is just across Russell Square from us here. Right. And that hotel was built in 1907, or it was opened in 1907 for the first the first guests were the South African cricket team so they were the first people to sign the, the guest book 
and of course it's a thing something that's been forgotten now but it was highly significant event in those days mm -hmm. South Africa had only been a uh, you know there'd been a war there until 1901 right people were still disputing whether that war was worth the blood and money that it cost and whether South Africa really was part of the empire well one way of saying that it was in a very public way was to have a South African cricket team stay at the Imperial Hotel it was it was a new story in those days but one that's you know completely been forgotten now and are there, you know, did the, what did the team make of <coughs> staying there? Do we know? They left uh, tour diary. Uh, I think for them, that's another thing about, I was thinking through, um, like the, the experience of touring. So we talk about, we as historians talk about these tours as kind of entirely, uh, I don't know, um, sort of objective things. They play these games, they go to these places, this is the stuff that we can, we can get at. Um, but any tours, whether you're, you know, in an amateur football club like I've been going to, I don't know, somewhere in Europe for a weekend, uh, they're emotional events as much as being sporting events. You're away from home. You're with a bunch of people that you don't normally live with. Yeah. Um, but all of a sudden, you have to spend all of your time with them. Uh, for these guys, they were going halfway across the world. Most of them not all of them, but probably a good half of them, going to Europe for the first time in their lives, mm. uh, spending seven months away from, uh, from home together. This is a real emotional thing. And so, yeah, I would love to know what they thought about the hotel, but unfortunately they don't record it. So uh, I think it, it would be an interesting study for an oral history project is to do a history of touring. You yeah. know, and to look at the tour as a as an event uh, for the players involved, you know, and uh, an emotional history of uh, the sports tour. You could you could do that after this emotional turn, you know. Um, you won't history. be doing that, Jeff, because you hate oral history. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got lots of ideas. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a brilliant idea. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, I don't know. Well, if anyone wants to fund that, <laughs> <laughs> throwing it you, out there. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess we sort of touched on the importance of, of comparative histories. Mm. Um, what's the key difference between British and French sporting imperialism oh. summed up in a couple of sentences, do you, uh, would you say? I, I would think, I think it's about this imperial belonging. Okay. So in France, because uh, citizenship is the key to being French in France, and at least officially, the state is blind to people's ethnicity to this day um, and so if you're a citizen of France you're French mm -hmm. um, and if you're not if you're subject to the uh, you know the Code Andigène um, in Algeria you might live in France but you're not Franco-French you're not French-French French, French, French uh, de souche I think is the term in France slightly pejorative or a slightly loaded term so I need to qualify that there um, whereas in Britain because we don't have this kind of citizenship a legally defined or in, in, let's say in the 1900s yep. um, it's in a way it's much easier to incorporate people into a British identity sort of informally That's really interesting, but that also yeah. makes it easier to exclude them as well because it's that typical English thing and I would call it a specifically English thing of well actually he's not really one of us so we'll just drop him for this game almost like the sort of um, 
rhetoric that you still hear around people like, I don't know, Kevin Peterson. Um, he's English when yeah. he's doing well. Um, and when he's sending text messages um, to the South Africans, then suddenly he's South African again yeah. and he's not English anymore. Definitely. But you do get that in France nowadays. Um, when, I, when I've talked to people in bars in France about football, they'll go, oh, it's not France. They're not French. You know, and you think, oh, wow, okay, I'm talking to a racist now. <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to leave. Um, but you, you hear that in England as well. But I think in those days, because empires were still in a process of definition, I and mean, we as historians are still defining what, what empires were, um, I think that in France it was much easier to be clear about what was France, who was French, and what was the empire. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Britain... Someone, a white Australian, people think, talk about them, well, they're just British. They're just British people who yeah. happen to live in Australia. This is a term you hear all the time. Um, but then when you come to South Africa, it becomes more complicated because South Africa is a much more multi-ethnic society. Mm -hmm. And especially you've got two European uh, colonizers in South Africa. And so uh, where am I going with that? I would say that in a, in, a, in a crude way, Britain, Britain's empire is much more of a rag bag, uh, which is in a constant process of self-definition, whereas the French uh, think much more theoretically about their empire. The British try to, but then imperial administrators are not so keen on it. But the French definitely, from the centre, are always thinking, what, what's the empire, what's mm. France? Two are very distinct. Okay, that's interesting. You talked about Bill Schwartz, who I'm interested in, mm. partly for his work on, um, I guess, the more recent period and, and how the legacies of imperialism still affect oh, Britain right. today. Do you think yeah. that sporting imperialism still kind of has quite potent impacts on oh. contemporary British society? I haven't prepped <laughs> you for this question, Jeff. so... Uh, well, I mean, we're sitting here um, during the World Cup, aren't we? And the ITV rugby coverage... Uh, is really interesting mm. because it's my own opinion and people might disagree with me and I haven't seen a lot of the coverage I must admit but it's very easily easy for their panelists to talk about the English world um, teams yeah. in, in that tournament when they talk about the Japanese they resort to cliche and national stereotypes very easily in a way that you wouldn't get away with on football uh, commentaries anymore even though it happens people are a lot hotter on it um, in football um, and because those stereotypes tend to be positive about Japan they get away with it but they're still stereotypes yeah. um, and so I think that you can yeah that's an imperial overhang you know mm -hmm. so that people in Britain know what Australia is yeah. uh, whereas Japan is a mystery and you think, well, it's not really. It's easy to. It's easy to go there if you want to go there. It's not a closed society. Japanese culture is very easy to access, except that people are more comfortable with a with a culture that's closer to their own, which is, I guess, is understandable. Um, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't understand why that's happening. And mm. part of that goes back to our kind of imperial history, I would say. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I no, feel no, like it's a, a job uh, interview. 
<laughs> really, well, I said I was going to turn it on its head, didn't yeah, I, Jeff? You yeah. know, it's a bit like getting the opportunity to interview Jeremy Paxman. Yeah, well, this is going like, a lot better than most of my job core. interviews. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, mentioned earlier briefly, you're currently researching the life of this particular French journalist, yeah. sportsman. Um, can you tell us a bit about him? Reichel. Yeah. Um, he's interesting. Uh, he, I mean... I couldn't believe that nobody had really written about him in depth before. So he turns up in lots of different um, pieces of work um, on French sports history, but nobody's done a life of him. Um, basically, he was the Coubertin's sort of, you know, uh, evangelist. Mm. Uh, he was his right hand man for a long time. His father was part of the original IOC. He grew up as a, you know, absolutely. Um, embedded in the Olympic movement and is kind of the godfather of French sport. So the Coubertin is the ideologue, if you like, and Reichel is the man who puts it all into action. And so he's got fingers in so many pies in French sport that when you read about him, you think, well, how did he even have the time to do all of this stuff? Because he was a boxer and a boxing referee. He was a sprinter. Uh, he was a rugby player, captain France. Oh. Uh, you know, all of these things. And so the way I always describe him to people is he was like the French C.B. Fry because he was also a journalist mm -hmm. and uh, an ideologue. He was very ideologically uh, motivated to defend mm -hmm. amateurism in France. And so he's the one who's trying to put a, a break on professionalism in France, mm -hmm. which uh, amateurism breaks down much later in France generally. Not, there are some exceptions than in Britain. Um, and when he died in '32, he was fighting tooth and nail against the professionalisation of soccer in France. And so the memorial I see is kind of being this kind of like uh, sort of big thing, you know, sort of saying to people, France, French sport is amateur. It's born in the, with these yep. roots in the Greek world, and don't forget it. But of course, the you know. It already collapsed by then. When uh, did they put the memorial up? Thirty-four. Okay. Uh, so, so you had rugby league uh, taking off in France. Briefly under Vichy, you have the return of the amateur ideal um, for ideological reasons. But then, of course, after World War Two, it's overturned mm -hmm. again. Although rugby again takes longer. Rugby union. Um, so yeah, so he's really interesting from that point of view because he has so many. It's too much. I can't fit it into an article. That's partly why I'm struggling to write the article at the moment. So I just need to narrow it down and say, well, I'll write about the memorial. What does the memorial yeah. mean? And that goes back to this visual history. So I'm looking at the memorial in terms of its design and the way in which it uses motifs from the ancient Greek world to explain his career. So naked athletes depicted on there uh, in the style of... Um, the Parthenon sculptures or the Elgin marbles to the elderly amongst us. <laughs> <laughs> so very much having these uh, classical ideas around Reichel. And yet at the same time, this is a man who was the first Frenchman to, to go in an aeroplane with one of the Wright brothers way back at the beginning of the 1900s. Wow. Uh, was a very uh, strong advocate of technology and you know, modernization in that way. That's completely ignored in the statue. So in the statue, it's like, no, he is an Olympian. Uh, I suppose you could use Olympian figure 
in, in a kind of a double meaning in that way, as <laughs> yeah. in he's up there with the gods, but he's also somebody who That could be the title of his biography, Jeff. Oh, wow. Well, no, is, is that the next project? <laughs> could be, if I got the time, but I'm quite busy, so <laughs> try and write the article first, and then if it's not crap, then maybe the book. <laughs> okay, great. Um, just wanted to ask you a couple of things about um, stuff like slightly separate to your research. Um, yeah. You've been secretary now of the BSSH for just over a year. Why did you decide to become more involved in the society? I like the society. You know, very. That was. I mean, one of the things I've asked that question to people on this podcast, and one of the things everybody says to me, oh, it's really friendly. And we've had a certain amount of uh, feedback on that uh, <laughs> on social media. <laughs> But um, certainly I found it uh, friendly when I first started going to conference and um, what I realised was that they didn't have enough old white men um, in, this, <laughs> in the BSSH. <laughs> no, no, no so barely I any thought, of those. Yeah, I thought I'd better get involved just to kind of rebalance things. <laughs> um, uh, no, seriously, it's, I think um, sometimes people are slightly apologetic about sports history mm. and I don't think we need to be apologetic about it and I don't think, I think it's less so now. I remember the, a, a thing that really annoyed me once was a, a day at the Montfort where a bunch of s sports historians got together in a room and just beefed about how they felt, oh, sports history is crap, <laughs> nobody likes us, you know, and I just thought just forget about it just do do what you do mm -hmm. and yeah if you want to describe yourselves as cultural historians fine you know that's what I'd normally do if, if people who aren't sports historians are talking to me but there's you know sports history is a valid uh, discipline and we really need to promote it as such and say look this is this is an activity that is really important to lots of people now but has been throughout the history of the UK, whether that's going back to Agincourt in 1415, uh, or whether you're talking about uh, women cricketers pioneering representation um, at Lords in the 1960s, 70s. And so we don't need to apologise for that. We just need to make our society better at talking to people and better at drawing people in to our members' work. And our members publish some incredible work. And uh, Oh, I'm welling up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. can see, Jeff. It wasn't yeah. difficult for me to, to get involved, let's put it that way. That's great. I think that's a brilliant way of articulating yeah. it. Um, and I guess that's one of the reasons for starting the podcast, is to try and make people yeah. a bit more aware of, of the research that's being done. Definitely. So the podcast um, is built on the back of the seminar that we run at the IHR, and that's what we're doing today, and you're mm -hmm. giving a paper today about women's cricket. Um, but we don't always get maximum attendance at that seminar. And it, it feels a shame to me because, you know, what we have in here, what we hear in the room is usually very good, yeah. interesting, and interesting not just to specialists, but I think interesting to the general public. And so the idea of the podcast is to get our members' research out into the world. And, and if that could mean out into a global academic audience, but also. Uh, potentially to uh, to a public audience mm -hmm. because I'm sure you've had this problem you write something for publication it gets a 90 pound uh, price tag stuck on it by an yeah. academic publisher and there are reasons for that I'm not, I don't want to go into the rights and wrongs of that but you know 
nobody's going to pick that up in Waterstones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not about selling books, it's about having people who are interested in your work actually know that it's there and being able to access it. And so like one of my uh, pieces of advice to students when I've been teaching is always write as if you're talking to the reader. You know, because no writing is worth doing unless somebody's reading it. If you if you're the only person reading it, you might as well not bother. Brilliant <laughs> advice. I usually don't put it quite as brutally and <laughs> bluntly as that, <laughs> but it's certainly something that I have in my head, and maybe that's why I'm slightly slow at um, getting started sometimes on the writing because I, I always feel like I shouldn't be writing something if I haven't got something interesting to say. And God knows we've all read too many bad articles, which are good research, but are oh, very difficult to get to the end mm-hmm. of. Um, and you, you, know, you use the footnote and you think, I'm never going to read that again. <laughs> uh, I don't want to write, you know I don't want to write work like that. Uh, <laughs> so, but I do want people to read it. Yeah. And there are lots of sports historians, academic sports historians, who are writing stuff that is very accessible to a public that are interested in that kind of thing. And so that's what the podcast for, is to say to people, people are writing really good stuff. You just don't know that it's out there. And... Yeah, spread the word. That's what I'd say. It's brilliant. Um, yeah. How's it been received uh, so far? Yeah, pretty good. People I've spoken to um, who have listened are like saying, "Yeah, that's good. Enjoyed that." Good. Uh, we get. Uh, I don't know what. I don't know what. What is good in terms of podcasts? Because it's something I've never done before. Uh, you know, we're not Adam Buxton or. <laughs> Oh, you know, um, fighting talk, but we don't have their resources or established fame. But we get um, listenerships in the hundreds, and so that's more than the average sports historian would talk to at a conference, for example. So that, to me, that's that's worth persevering with. I think that's uh, brilliant, yeah. yeah. And we're only really in very early days, aren't yeah. we? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But if great. people give us feedback, I want feedback always because mm-hmm. I'm not complacent about this and I don't want it to be like my thing I want other if I want other people who are in this BSSH because it's a BSSH Mm -hmm. podcast but if other people want to do an episode I'd be very happy um, because I want it to be about the community that we're in rather than just individuals and uh, that's that's always my um, whatever activity I'm in that's always my goal is to advance the interests of the group rather than one particular person. Okay, great. Um, Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, Our next podcast is going to be going up on the IHR website and it will feature me, hooray, um, talking about my latest research project, which which looks at the governance of women's sport in the 1990s um, and the kind of shift from women's sport being governed separately to men's sport um, to the two kind of moving towards being governed jointly. Um, But for now, um, it's goodbye from both me and Jeff. Goodbye. Goodbye.